Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence podcast. I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. With us today in the studio is a wonderful person uh, who I'm very much looking forward for all of you to get to meet. But first, we're going to be talking about Anne M. Martin of Babysitter's Club fame, who recently gave one of her first interviews in a while to New York Magazine. And I don't know if she has done this before. As far as I can tell, this is the first time that anyone has mentioned it. But Anne M. Martin is a queer woman. And she has had a lady partner, and she mentioned at the end of it that she felt like she was Mary Ann, which I'm very excited about because I feel like this solidifies my theory that as they grow up, Christy Thomas and uh, Mary Ann Spears. Is it Spears or Spires? I'm just realizing I only ever read it and I never saw it spoken. You can't see something spoken. My producer is shaking her head at me in every direction. The point is, I knew that they were going to fall in love. I knew that Logan was a beard. I knew that Anne M. Martin was gay somehow. And uh, I'm really excited to be vindicated now, 20 years after I've stopped reading The Babysitter's Club. Uh, and, and none of this any longer has direct bearing on my life. But, you know, anyone who grew up in the 80s and 90s and ever babysat has at least a passing familiarity with The Babysitter's Club. And I think for a lot of us, Christy and Marianne were some of the first people who pinged on our radar. And we thought, they seem gay. I hope they are. But I don't know. And now we know because authors are their characters, apparently. And uh, if someone is gay and writes a book, their characters are gay, obviously. So with that, I'm vindicated. Everyone who disagreed with me in junior high is wrong. And you can all just suck an egg. And with that, uh, before we jump into our questions, I wanted to turn you guys on to one of my favorite alternative sources of questions. Because if you're anything like me, you know, before I was Dear Prudence, I read Dear Prudence obsessively. And I love reading other people's advice columns. I love hearing about the kinds of problems that people can have. I find them fascinating and horrifying and exciting. And one of my favorite things to do is check uh, my former business partner, Nicole Cliff's Twitter feed, because she's always posting questions from Reddit slash legal advice and slash relationships. It is perfect. 
And she recently linked to uh, someone who posted to legal advice who asked, I'm relatively wealthy. I have about half a million dollars in savings and stocks, as well as owning my own home. But looking back on life, maybe I spent too much time at work and not enough time raising my sons properly. We do not get along at all. They are entitled, rude, and haven't made anything of themselves because they expect to inherit everything from me. I've had enough of them, and I want to teach them a lesson after I die. Unfortunately, I've talked to a couple of lawyers, and none of them have agreed to help me, so I'm looking online. I want to create a will, or a couple of wills, so convoluted that my sons have to fight one another to inherit anything. My thoughts so far are that maybe I could prepare two wills and date them on the same day. One would give almost everything to one son, while the other would give almost everything to the other son. I'd also tell one son about the will, but then act really loopy and confused around the other so he would think that I might not be in a right state of mind. My sons already don't like each other, and I know they would fight each other to the death to get my money. What else can I do to make things as expensive and difficult as possible? I'm in Illinois. And that's the end. That's the end of the letter. Just, by the way, I'm in Illinois, in case that's going to be helpful to anyone who's really excited about the idea of setting up a probably illegal dueling wills situation um, in order to just tie up our legal court system for the next 10 years. (laughs) And I also love that, like, this is over half a million dollars. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, this is over the most vast fortune that anyone's ever seen. It's like, you're not even a millionaire, man. Like, this is kind of kind of small, small stakes. I just love it. I love it so petty. I love that it's probably illegal. I love that lawyers have already turned him down like, no, man, I'm not going to help you tie up the court system just because you don't like your kids. And I love just the like beautiful sociopathic lack of self-awareness, not like, hey, my sons hate each other. What can I do either to like remove myself from their drama or to try to be a better father? Like, how can I leave them my money so that they like don't bother each other? Or should I leave my money to charity? No, it's just how can I use what I have to ruin their lives from beyond the grave? So with that in mind, um, I want to bring that kind of petty focused energy to our chat. Uh, and I'd like to introduce our guest today. Uh, our guest today is Rebecca Sanchez. She is a Bay Area native and a massage therapist slash yoga instructor slash non-professional satirist slash friend of mine. And uh, I'm really glad to have her here today. Hi, Rebecca. Hey, Mallory. Um, what do you think of the dueling wills scenario, by the way? Wow, I'm overwhelmed. Um I really don't have anything to say about it because my personal situations, I pretty much am expecting to get nothing because uh, my mother's identity was stolen a total of three times. She lost Ooh. everything in the 2008 market crash. My dad is not a good budgeter. So um, I don't know. It sounds kind of fun. Like if I were a lawyer, I probably would jump on that yeah. wanting to help him out. I would. I would just encourage him to spend it all on himself. Oh, that's a great idea. Like, you know, it doesn't sound like you're you're dying yet. Like. Go all out. Buy a zoo. Right. Or just go to town on one of those catalogs that they have on flights. What are they called? Hammock or Schlemmer? Or Sky Mall. Sky Mall. Sky Mall. I don't know why I went first to Hammock or Schlemmer. That is why definitely... Why do you even have that in, in your brain? I think it's like the German Sky Mall, I want to say. Oh, wow. I'm That's not a, even more obscure. I'm not 100% sure. But... um. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. You could get a lot on Sky Mall. You could get one of those floaties for the pool that also has like a like a boombox attached to it and a little cup holder so you could just live in a pool. You can get awesome shower accessories to like hang virtually everything, conduct your office from the shower. This you person. can get one of those puffy chairs that resembles vaginal labia but is actually a chair that you set up in the park and you like 
hold it up and then fill it with air by swinging it around. And I've have never heard of this. And have for your cell phone and your book on the side. That's a, all of these are better ideas yeah. than setting up mean wills. Um, Rebecca, do you feel ready to solve the world's problems with me today? I think I could do it one person at a time, yeah. All right, let's get started. I'm going to go ahead and read the first letter. It is called Morbid Fascination. Oh, I'm liking it already. Yeah, I'm excited. Dear Prudence, my in-laws are sweet people that I get along with, but I'm not especially close with them. For one, they're very religious and we're atheists, but they're also petrified of change. They don't have active social lives. They refuse to fly or embrace technology. They don't have cell phones or access to the internet, which makes relating to them difficult. For the most part, I can manage to have a pleasant conversation with them, except for one quirk. They are obsessed with death. Their main source of entertainment consists of looking through the obituary section of the Sunday paper to see if they know anyone who has died and attend their funeral. My 70-year-old father-in-law attended the funeral of a high school classmate that he'd never seen again after graduating. They've recently been to some in-laws, in-laws, in-laws funeral. Every time we ask what's new, we get all the details on all the services. One time they sent my parents a Christmas card where they wrote a whole paragraph about seeing someone with my parents' last name in the obituaries and how they hoped that it wasn't my father's father. It was not. It was very morose for a Christmas greeting. As far as I can tell, they don't participate in any other activities you'd expect of retirement-age people, and this is the only thing they do outside of the house. My partner finds it very difficult to spend time with them and carry on a conversation that doesn't involve someone's grandniece getting diagnosed with skin cancer, but struggles to tell them how unhealthy it is to fixate on the inevitable demise of every acquaintance they've ever met. It takes a real toll on their relationship. Do you think they need some type of intervention, or should we just leave them alone to dwell on whatever seems to make them happy in their old age? First of all, I think I could really relate to these parents because I also read the obituaries. Not so I can see if somebody can die, but to see... Like how they died, how old were they, when they died, if there's any details regarding their death, which is usually not. It's really unfortunate that there's not more details in obituaries. Maybe you would be a great daughter-in-law for them. You yeah, I was going to of... say they could hook me up with these parents because I actually think these people need an agent of sorts. I think Like that, a funeral agent? No, 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 no. Like a book agent. Like I think it'd be great for them to write children's books on death oh and God. facing your mortality. Because I know that my mother, in her mid-60s, is talking more and more about death. And at first I was really pissed about it. And then I just thought, wait, let me just ease into this and hear what she's talking about. This is going to be happening to me, too, as mm -hmm. I get older, right? I never thought I'd be that woman talking about, oh, my God, when I get up in the morning, I creak and I, and I make crunchy noises and I have to stretch before I can, like, reach for my feet. But now I am one of those people. So I think that it'd be really cool to introduce these in-laws to different uh, rituals around death from around the world and just let them get fully into it. So that mm -hmm. when they get into their house, they have like a Dia de los Muertos altar set up and they have maybe like, maybe they need to take a trip to Guanajuato. There's the Museum of Mummies there where the earth is of such high mineral content that it actually petrifies bodies. Oh my God, so I'm all the poor this. people that couldn't afford a coffin, they dug them up put them in these glass containers inside of a museum so you can pay to walk through and look at them. Do you think they could take a train there? Because it says they don't fly. Oh, heck yeah. Okay. First of all, they can take a bus mm -hmm. down to Mexico, mm -hmm. and the buses in Mexico are nicer than the ones here in this country. That does not surprise me. Our buses here are terrible. You get ham and American cheese on white bread sandwiches in a, in a small cooler next to your seat, and you get to watch a movie. While you're riding on this bus, it's air conditioned. Can we? 
Yeah, I want. Totally I want to go on that. this trip. So, like, your advice is just like embrace this. I'm embrace with it. I say let them run with it. Yeah, spend minimal amounts of time with them. Mm-hmm. Probably be a good time to contact them when you're PMSing and you're depressed, so they can help you spiral downwards even further. And just go there. Just go there with them. Don't try and change them. Don't try and do an intervention with them. Just write it all the way. And I'm, maybe they're going to ask you to stop talking about death eventually. I'm actually kind of into this. I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't sure how I felt about this, but I, I think trying to get people to stop talking about death seems like awfully tough, especially if it seems like that's what they're interested in. Like, I think it makes sense. Like, they're old. Everyone they know is dying. They're going to be dying soonish. It's not how I would want to spend my twilight years, but I can certainly understand, like... Me neither. Um, I want to still be on, like, campaign lift my ass until I'm, like, in my 80s. Can um, I cuss on here? Yes, you can. Please. Okay. By all means. But, yeah, I can see how it seems like this is kind of their favorite thing. They're, like, funeral crashers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which which is, is really hilarious. You could kind of ask, like, what's it like to go to people's funerals you don't know really well? How do you get in? What's the food like? I mean, this sounds like it could, you could actually, this sounds like movie script type material. Yeah, this is very Harold and Maude. Exactly. They need to sell their story. They need to have their own column, similar to Dear Prudence, but advising people around death. They mm-hmm. seem to be funeral experts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just going to be a Beetlejuice kind of scenario. Don't spend every weekend with them, but probably accept the fact that they are going to want to talk a lot about death and funerals. And the best way to handle that is just to say, okay, when we talk, there's going to be a lot of talk about death. And uh, just And then on a superficial level, when you do go to visit them, it'd be kind of cool to just go ahead and put a lot of white powder on your face, emphasis the lines, and we're all black. So just get into the yeah. death sartorial nature of... Yeah, just really, like, play up the ritual of it all. Thank you. That's okay. what I was trying to say. I'm I'm actually really into this. I like this answer. I think that that's probably the best technique. I think if you were to try to have an intervention with your 70-year-old in-laws and say, you talk about death too much, knock it off, maybe they'll just stop talking to you. They'll probably just keep talking about death. I don't think that that's going to be a very effective strategy. Um and I think your plan of like carefully controlled conversations, but that allow them to express what they really are interested in, which it sounds like are just funeral going. Take them to the Museum of Death in L.A. Take that bus trip um, that you were talking about. But Take just, them to the Holocaust Museum. Take yeah. them everywhere there's death. These, these are amazing, just death-themed field trips. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do it. Okay. Uh, Rebecca, do you want to read the next one? Um, sure, I can do that. Of course. Because I so love hearing my own voice. I love it. Your voice is soothing and melodic. Oh, my God. The subject is best friend hates my husband. My best friend, let's call him Steve, is a 30-something gay bachelor, whereas I am married with two kids. We have lots in common, and we spend time together at least twice a week. The problem is my husband. I feel like that part should be highlighted. Steve and my husband were friends for 10 years before I met my husband, and Steve was a groomsman at our wedding. However, as Steve and I became closer friends, he and my husband drifted apart. Also highlighted. Steve and my husband have always been sneaky about each other. Excuse me, snarky about each other. They both have very different personalities and rarely talk to each other. Honestly, I'm not sure how they were ever friends, but they seem to always put me in the middle. For a long time, my husband was jealous of the time I spent with Steve, and the last time we were all together, my husband was very rude to him. 
While he did apologize, it has caused what seems to be an irreparable rift. My husband mostly refrains from commenting on my relationship with Steve, but Steve always manages to make jokingly snarky comments about my husband. He also talks about how much he hates kids. He doesn't really, he's amazing with my toddler, and how relationships and marriage are stupid. However, when I was recently hospitalized for six weeks, Steve was one of the first people to visit me and came to see me almost every single day. He's helped me through a lot of my depression and has been a really good friend to me. My question is this, is this friendship viable? I love Steve, but I don't love how he talks about my family and my life. I don't judge his his choices. I wish he wouldn't judge mine. Whew. There's, I have so many questions about, like, I don't want to say you stole your husband's friend, but, like, clearly the fact that he and your husband were once close enough that your husband asked him to be a groomsman and now they can't talk to each other. Um, Like, there's a lot there. Like, you stole your husband's friend. Not that that's... Not that you're a bad person or that you did it intentionally, but, like, clearly Steve shifted from being your husband's very close friend to just your friend. And it does not sound like they have been able to talk about it. Like, Mm -hmm. they are just – clearly they've caused each other some pain. They feel rejected by each other. They feel misunderstood. And they – it sounds like are not able to talk to one another about that. And that's really sad. Hmm. Yeah. I think the reason I said this part should be highlighted was because um, it's interesting when you look at the title, Best Friend Hates My Husband, and then the writer clearly states the problem is my husband, mm. and um, and then states in parentheses, honestly, I'm not sure how they were ever friends. Right, which they were. I right. mean, they were really good friends. He and they seem to put me in the middle. Whenever says somebody says they seem to put me in the middle— I always look at the person in the middle and I'm like, move. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because she is she's really stuck in the middle here. Yeah. She has put herself right in between them. Yeah. And he has been very helpful. Maybe Steve is being helpful to her because she's more open and receptive to him. Whereas there's obviously, you know, underlying feelings and like this weird contention between husband and Steve. Maybe she needs to step back Hmm. and do some dialectical behavioral therapy, some tapping, Hmm. some maybe an active yoga practice. Maybe I'm biased. A yoga practice, something that's going to get those endorphins going. At least touch your toes. Touch your toes. Get those endorphins running. Stretch out the hamstrings. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Something, Something to help with the depression and worry about all that and the kids. And not about Steve and the husband. Yeah, and I think for her, it's going to... Obviously, my temptation is for her to like to say, you should sit down with your husband and find out like why he's sad about Steve and why he's upset and why he's jealous. And you should talk to Steve and say, when did your friendship with your, your, my husband change? But like, obviously, like you cannot adjudicate their friendship. Good like, word. You have, you have already been the medium through which they have channeled a lot of emotions. Um, and I don't think that it's going to be helpful for you to try to mediate further. But, you know, you, it sounds like you kind of had a conversation because it doesn't sound like your husband's as jealous as the time you spend with Steve anymore. So you've sort of said something to him that's made it clear, like, please stop saying bitchy things to Steve. And you haven't had a conversation with Steve where you say, hey, I know you and my husband used to be really close. I know you're not now. 
I don't want to get involved in your guys' dynamic, but I want you to know that it's painful for me when you make fun of my husband and my kids in front of me Mm -hmm. because I know that you really care about me. Like, you've shown up for me when I've needed you. Mm -hmm. You were there when I was sick. I've seen you around my child. I know that you love us. So it's really hurtful and confusing for me, and I would like to ask you as a friend to knock it off. And then, like, if Steve and your husband are ever able to have some conversations about what happened between the two of them, that would be great. But... That's not something you can fix. I, mm-hmm. I do think this is viable. I think Steve's a person who really cares about you. I think the real issue is between Steve and your husband. And the less you kind of spend trying to get the two of them to like each other again or put the two of them in situations where they have to interact with you and each other and they kind of are vying for your attention. It's this weird kind of almost love triangle. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that you should probably refrain from from moving in that direction. Um, I just got a visual of wife buying one of those C's candy boxes, taking out the key that tells you which chocolate is which, mm-hmm. putting it in between Steve and husband, and saying, you guys work it out. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take the kids on a, we're going to go to the park for three hours, you <laughs> know, and let the C's candy box be a conversation piece to work out their past resentments and aggression. That kind of sounds amazing. Okay. I like that. I think we should close on that visual. We have fixed this problem. All right. Uh, This one is called Venmo etiquette. Mm. This is exciting. Dear Prudence. This is also great because it's one of those things that like this goes from like, ah, two of the people I'm closest with don't like each other. How do I solve this complex equation? And this one's just straight up. My friend charged me two dollars. And I really appreciate being able to go from one to the other. So with that said. Yeah, one is deep and emotional and the other one's petty and i love petty i do i do i need a a weekly dose of petty or otherwise i would wither and die so we should hang out more often then (laughs) dear prudence a few weeks ago a friend texted to say he was roasting a chicken for dinner and invited a few of us over to share it i accepted the invitation brought a six-pack of beer and we all had a lovely evening the next day he charged me two dollars on venmo is this not a little absurd I get that it costs a lot to feed people for dinner, but I've had people over for meals before, ask them to pick up something like salad ingredients or a bottle of wine, and I never thought to charge my guests for their share. I figure it all evens out eventually. It's nice to share a meal together. I don't care about giving him this money now, but I don't want to set a precedent for future meals that I don't really agree to. For what it's worth, he charged another friend who didn't bring anything to the meal $4, which seems totally arbitrary. Am I missing something? I love this guy. Oh, man. I, no, not the one who wrote it. I love the friend. That no, charged. I know. I love I love picturing him at home with one of those old timey like green visors and like with a golf pencil, just like, all right, Sarah ate. And an abacus. Yeah, yeah. Sarah ate more of the leg than everyone else. So I'm going to charge her five. And wow. like Carl used a lot of toilet paper. Did he roast so. it or he'd get it at Costco? It says that he was roasting a chicken for dinner. Oh. So I think this might have been like a homemade roast chicken, which is still not that expensive. A roasting chicken is way cheaper than like chicken breast. Is it hormone-free, free range? I should write them back and ask. I don't know. Because that would make a difference. That might make me want to charge people. If I was having people over, I would definitely give them hormones and caged, and then I wouldn't worry about charging them. I mean, I think the understanding, right, when you get a casual invitation from a friend for dinner— is not that they are knocking themselves out to put together this elaborate, expensive feast. The understanding generally with a casual get-together is, hey, I was making some dinner and I'd love to share it with someone. Right. I mean, he obviously had this preconceived notion in his head that uh, this meal was 
Like you should have just charged a cover, actually, when people came in the door. Sure, yeah. Or let passed them know. around a donation basket. Yeah, let them. I, I think it seems clear that this person sort of feels like if they had said something up front, I might not feel so miffed. Yeah. But there's something about getting it after the fact and having it be for such a small amount as $2 that feels just like, are we really going to keep track of all the little favors that we do for each other as yeah. friends? Because if so, like... Last week, you took a couple sips of my latte, so I would like the 75 cents that you drank. You know, this seems to be a reoccurring theme. Yeah. And I get it. Times are tough out there. Like, we're all hustling. We're all cobbling together three and four and five and six side gigs if we're not lucky enough to have a full-time job. It's true. But then you could have sent a request ahead of time. Yeah. So I might have a verbal conversation with this friend and ask them, What's the deal? I'm a little ups- offended and slightly upset. I don't understand if you had sent something to me ahead of time. You know, I could have given you some dollars. Mm-hmm. But in my book, I would not have a dinner party, invite people over, and then charge them. Where it's your frame of mind about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's probably what's going to be called for. And it sounds like they would really rather not, which I get. Because this started with a sort of bewildering electronic communication rather than a call saying, hey, could you give me $2? But that's kind of what this whole electronic setup enables. Right. Right. For people not to communicate. And so you can say something that you would feel really uncomfortable speaking out loud with your mouth because you can just send it and not have to watch someone's reaction. They could communicate by snail mail just to kind of like take it back even more. Like don't write them a check. Yeah. Don't respond. To the Venmo request, write him a letter, send it in the mail, ask him to write back. What do you think? I think I almost spit out my water at the idea of, of starting a, a correspondence over this. Because I feel like pretty soon the cost of stamps is going to get you both up to $2. It's true. But if you want it to be equally as petty mm. and kind of make a point. Oh, I think that's going to that's gonna destroy a friendship. Okay. If you both start getting Venmo level petty over 2 bucks, like... You don't want to lose this friendship over $2, but I also understand your desire not to set a precedent. So I think next time you see him or give him a call, say, hey, I was a little surprised and offended. Maybe don't use the word offended because it's a little soon for offended. But yeah, just I was a little surprised and taken aback. Taken aback is a good one. Yeah, taken aback. Um, that you charged me for dinner. Uh, I had thought this was an informal get together. I brought beer. I, I I don't want to think of us as like periodically charging each other. Um, can you kind of tell me what your thoughts are? Yeah. And then you know, give them two dollars. Physically give them two dollars. Don't don't do the Venmo thing. Just like hand them two dollars so that they have to actually stand there and accept money from you and deal with the consequences of their actions. And then just say like, hey, in the future, if you want to charge for a dinner party, I'd really rather know beforehand because it's just. You know, I'm not operating on that assumption most of the time. Thank God you're dear prudence and not me. I feel like it'd be like the emotional Donald Trump and I'd start like you could never waging wars again, you know, between people. Because I think the letter writing is a great tactic. I, I love it. But I also feel like you're going to run out of friends really fast. Um, and I don't want that for this person, especially if they have friends who regularly roast chickens. Like That's I want them. so loving of you. <laughs> Any time. Just admiration for you. Well, speaking of admiration. Here's a terrible segue. Let's read the next letter. All right, go for it. Cool. All right. So the subject of this one is love his daughter, him not so much. This is another one of those letters, by the way, where I went back and forth a couple of times. I don't usually think letters might be fake, but this one sounds almost like the plot of a movie to me. So if anyone listens to this and they're like, yes, it's definitely a movie. I saw the movie. Here's the name. Give me a call. Let me know. But I'm going to go ahead and, and operate on the assumption that this could be true because... 
Things happen, you guys. Things happen in this weird and wonderful world of ours, and they are confusing and bonkers, and they don't make any sense, and this might be one of them. Okay, let's hear it. Dear Prudence, a year ago, I got involved with the Volunteer Literacy Organization. I became friends with a volunteer, a teenage girl named Laura, who is being raised by a single dad. Her mom is totally out of the picture, and her dad's a high-level executive who is leaving his daughter to pretty much raise herself. I became very close to Laura, and she wanted me to meet her father. I did, and largely because Laura seemed to want it, we started dating after a fashion. He has now proposed. He has made it clear that this is what Laura wanted, not him. He does not want a relationship. He wants somebody to be there for Laura. I'm torn. I really love Laura and would like to be a part of her life, and she needs somebody. Marrying her father would let me be that person. However, I'm not in love with her father. He's a cold, distant person who is interested only in business. Do you think the happiness of a child is worth a marriage and name only? Okay, this is definitely a Bronte novel. What? I mean, I don't... There's not a Bronte novel that comes to mind, but this definitely happened to someone that the Brontes wrote about. (laughs) I just... I didn't think things like that still happened. Like, I am a businessman. My daughter requires a mother. Please fill that role. I do not love you. Wow. This also would be a great start to a romance novel where, like, okay, I'll do it for Laura, but then you guys, like, realize you have all this tension and, like, you fall for each other. Yeah, like Annie. Yeah. 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 I didn't mean to get so excited about that. (laughs) But, like, this could be a setup to something really beautiful. But it's probably not. I mean, come on. She could easily just become the young girl's, you know, quote-unquote mentor. Yeah, you don't need to marry her dad. Or become auntie so-and-so. Yeah. I mean, is she even getting laid out of this? He's cold and distant. So if if so, it's like getting laid by a glacier. It's just... Yeah. I mean, if someone was going down on me, I might consider it. She does not specify in the letter the degree to which she is being going down upon. If I was getting some sort of physical stimulation and or bank account stimulation... But he probably would have a wicked prenup. Oh, God. Can you imagine? Yeah. Yeah. No, it would not be. No, I mean, I think you know that you're not going to marry this guy. Your letter does not sound like someone who is convinced that she's going to do it. You sound more like you want a sounding board because this is really bizarre. And it is. But no, there are ways to stay in this young person's life that don't involve marrying her father. She's already a teenager. She's done a lot of her growing up. It's not like she needs someone at home to, like, help her get ready for school. Um, yeah. And uh, you already know you would be miserable. Right. I mean, she can just be a, you know, female figure in her life that offers advice and love and weekends away from dad. And yeah, know, let me show you how to use a tampon. Here's how you put a condom on a banana. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would be great for Laura to spend, you know, less time with her father, it sounds like, if he's in the habit of just proposing at people his daughter meets because he doesn't feel like raising her. Right. Um, That sounds like an ineffective strategy. And I feel bad for the next person who actually says yes Mm -hmm. and gets sort of trapped. Mm -hmm. But yeah, don't marry him. Mm -hmm. Don't do it. I wonder if you can introduce one um, person to another, but people that write questions, because I would like this father to meet the um, death-obsessed in-laws. Oh, they would have amazing conversations. He would not like them. I know. And I, I would know. like to see them. But he might have a lawyer for the <gasps> father that wants to write the will for the son. Oh, my God. Yes. You know, if you could do some matchmaking like that. Oh, I really wish I could. 
Oh, I just don't know how to get in touch with the person from Reddit because they didn't write to me. Oh, that's true. I also wish very much that I could have been there for the proposal when he had just said, obviously, you and I don't care for one another, but my daughter seems to have taken to you. And therefore, I find you acceptable as a wife. I am willing to marry you and move you into one of my And she didn't homes. say what the ring looked like because that might have been a deciding factor. Oh, for I bet me. there wasn't a ring. I bet there was no ring. I bet he's one of those stingy rich guys who says, you know, I would take care of you, of course, but like, didn't actually get a ring. Tie. Yeah, I mean, he would Symbolic. get, he would have like a wedding ring for when you go down to the courthouse, but he's not going to, this guy didn't get to where he is by like giving away jewelry willy nilly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. No, he's careful. He's Next. more careful than that. Uh, I think my last thought about that is the question at the end, do you think the happiness of a child is worth a marriage in name only? Because we get a lot of questions that are sort of based around, what should I do for the happiness of my children? And am I obligated to do this to keep a child happy? And let's all take a minute to remember, there's a lot of ways to be happy. You, you know, this kid could be perfectly happy without you marrying her dad. That is a false choice if you think, I can either make her happy and marry her father or make her miserable and not marry her father. You could also just keep volunteering together and spend time with her and take her to the movies and, like, have conversations about dating and college. Mm -hmm. um, and none of those would involve marrying her dad. Yeah. I mean, and plus she's, she's a teenager. Yeah. She might not be in the mood for it that day. Right. I've, I've, I've made a lot of people happy, and I've never married their dads. So... <laughs> that alone tells me that you can make people happy without marrying their fathers. God forbid. That should have to be a qualification. Can you imagine if you have to marry someone's dad every time you wanted to spend time together? Oh Just like, God. ugh, I've got so many dads on my string. Well, you'd have a divorce lawyer on speed dial. I, I'm assuming that in this society, this is just one where, like, people marry dads a lot. Like, everyone's got, like, four or five dads on rotation. It's just like, who's, whose dad are you married to right now? Or we'd just be a polygamous society. Yeah, absolutely. Woo! Well, and on that note... Rebecca, we have fixed everyone's problems. This has been so cathartic for me. I, I can't thank you enough. I mean, we've sent people on death field trips. Uh, we've turned them into highly paid mercenaries. We have talked them out of horrible, you know, formal marriages to men who don't care about them. You did it. Thank you. What a sense of accomplishment. Yep. I feel like I can go buy my sesame tofu salad now. I think you can, too. I think you've earned it. And I hope that you just just revel in it. Thank you. Thank you so much for all the people that wrote in. Yeah. And uh, and the trust. And I hope, you know, that um, that things go well for everyone that wrote in. Thank yeah. you for inviting me, Mallory. Of course. What a pleasure. Absolutely. We'll have to have you back. Rebecca, thank you so much. In keeping with the theme of the last couple of episodes, which has just apparently been Mallory describes movie trailers she's seen while watching other movies, um, I want to talk about how excited I am about the Tom Hanks as Sully Sullenberger trailer, by which I mean, I'm just really excited to watch the trailer. I don't know that I need to see the movie. I feel like it's definitely more of a trailer length story because, you know, the premise of the movie is just something bad didn't happen. Isn't that great? And I love watching Tom Hanks, you know, going through something bad almost happening. And I love that he's really leaning heavily into the, like, America's dad look and that he's just, you know, always concerned and trying to do the right thing. But what's great about the trailer is the entire conflict is, what if something worse had happened? Which it didn't. 
Like, everyone agrees and remembers that it was really good, and he did a really good job landing the plane in the Hudson, and it was a total accident, nobody's fault, geese flew into the engines, and everyone lived and was healthy. But so the whole trailer is just, like, people asking Tom Hanks as he has this really worried-looking mustache, just like, but what if everyone had died? And you know that everyone did not die, which really lowers the stakes. And it kind of puts me in mind of how when the Hobbit trailers all came out, it was sort of anticlimactic because everyone was sort of being asked the question, remember this world you really liked? What if we revisited it, but with much lower stakes? Um, Which was the real problem with the Hobbit movie. Um, It was just like, remember the big adventure you had? Here's a smaller one stretched out further. And then it's the same thing with Sully, where it's just like, remember that guy who didn't crash a plane? What if he had crashed it? And I love that. It makes me very happy. I wish more movies were about a conflict that never occurred and are just nice people interrogating their own motives because they want to make sure that they're really being nice uh, and and, and not just tricking themselves. And I, I want more movies like that where just good people obsessively ask themselves, did I really do the right thing? And then conclude, yes, yes, I did. Um, more movies like that, please uh, send them my way. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. Reviews extend your lifespan and help new listeners find the podcast, which means more questions and more advice. Just search for Slate Dear Prudence. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. I'd love to answer your question. Call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you may hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it to 30 seconds a minute tops and send it to me at prudencepodcast at gmail.com. 